Hi, this is David Rutledge. You're in the Philosopher's Zone. Today, the beauty of mathematical proofs. It's like uh, looking at to a woman dressed very elegantly and uh, it's difficult to explain in words, but if you see it, you see it immediately. I went into a classroom recently and explained the proof of Pythagoras' theorem to a group of, of nine-year-olds and it's so exceptionally beautiful. It's an idea that when you see it, you just think, oh, wow. The great Hungarian mathematician, Paul Erdes, uh, used to say that when he went to heaven, God would show him the golden book, which had the best proofs of all the theorems. And his great ambition in life was that when he went to heaven and saw the golden book, he'd find one of his own proofs in the book. A proof is a process, you, you know, you move from one step to another and the more you can make that process you know, as straight and as, as sleek as possible with no deviations, the more beautiful it becomes. A clean direction of the proof and how things fit together uh, and yeah, elegance is really what's it. It comes in the music of Sibelius and the Greek plays as well. They're just raw ideas but expressed in such a concise, effective way that it's brilliant. So there you have it. A mathematical proof is like an elegantly dressed woman. It has overwhelming wow factor. It's sleek and straight. It's like the music of Sibelius or classical Greek drama. And there's a whole book of them in heaven. All of which would have come as news to me when I was in high school, a numerical no-hoper for whom maths was more like a big bowl of cold porridge. But today's guest has got me interested because she has an account of the significance of beauty in mathematics that's quite fascinating fascinating and, as far as I'm concerned, very persuasive. Uh, at first sight, you would think that, you know, well, all there is to a mathematical proof is whether it's correct or not. And yet, the fact that mathematicians, professional mathematicians, are very interested in the phenomenon of mathematical beauty, the fact that they are interested, that, they, that it seems to play a role in their practices falls in the face of this idea that proof is only about establishing the truth of the conclusion. Her name is Katerina Dutil Novaes. She's Associate Professor of Philosophy at the Free University of Amsterdam and a recent visitor to Australia, where she was speaking on the beauty of mathematical proofs. And we'll get onto that a little later in the program. But Katerina Novaes has interesting things to say, not just about mathematics, but about deductive reasoning in general, which she sees as something dialogical, something external, even something social, all of which goes against the familiar idea of reason and logic as being exclusively interior and cerebral. Yeah, so you're right that the current conception is still very much tied, uh, deductive reasoning as tied to mono-agent processes of thinking, right? So internal mental processes. And this is a conception that has been developing in the history of thought in general, history of philosophy, history of logic, at least since the Renaissance, since Descartes, so early modern philosophy. And it culminates in Kant, who says uh, things like, uh, you know, uh, uh, logic provides the conditions for thought as such. But if you look at it historically, Historically, this is a fairly recent development. So if you look at the history of philosophy, the history of logic more broadly, what you see is that actually for many, many more centuries, 
the predominant idea was that deductive reasoning is inherently tied to situations of argumentation and of debating. So for a long time, logic was synonymous with dialectic. And dialectic, in turn, really refers to these multi-agent processes of people uh, engaging in discussions with each other. And uh, this, if you see this certainly in the early days of uh, ancient Greek philosophy with Plato, Aristotle, I mean, these are well-known authors, of course, but it continues and it runs through uh, the Latin Middle Ages, and I've also done a lot of work on Latin medieval logic. And uh, it goes all the way up to even in the 16th century, some late scholastic authors would say that logic is, dialectic is really about debating and argumentation. And it's only after that that it starts to change and people start kind of internalizing these logical notions as pertaining to operations of the mind rather than pertaining to specific features of dialogical interaction. And why does that happen? Is this the influence of Descartes or, or does, it, does it start happening earlier than that? It starts a little earlier. So you see already in the 14th century, there is a tendency towards talking about logical notions in terms of mental operations and then culminates with Descartes. And it's not just about logic. So early modern philosophy in general, you see a tendency towards uh, more attention for mental mental processes and, and, and right. so everything that belongs to the internal realm of thought. So that's not just with logic, that's more general. Uh, so if you think about, I mean, one way to see this, to kind of illustrate it concretely, is that uh, in the Latin medieval period, the quintessential uh, intellectual activity was to take part in disputations and oral disputations that these things actually took place. And, and many canonical uh, um, Latin medieval uh, writings are structured in the form of disputations. So, for example, Thomas Aquinas' Summa Theologica is also uh, presented as a kind of regimented f- version of a, of a fictional disputation. And some of these weren't, weren't even fictional. They really actually took place and they their reports of how exactly the conversations took place. Whereas with Descartes, for, you know, I suppose many listeners will be familiar with the, fa- the famous uh, the Meditations by Descartes, where, where he starts is, you know, I'm here by myself by the fire, and I'm uh, imagining the situation where, you know, I want to get rid of all the preconceived notions that I received from other people. I want to just come to my own conclusions all by myself. That would be unthinkable in the medieval period. So that's a general movement within philosophy, not just with respect to logic, but with logic specifically, you see that very clearly too. So let's at this point turn to mathematics. And I'd like to begin with ancient Greek mathematics, because this is a process that started out as dialogical. you've, You've written about this yourself, shaped by the practice of debating. But then at some point it went to writing, written proofs became the sort of template. And Is this where we see a move in the direction of that more hermetic understanding of mathematical logic, the move to writing? Yeah, so uh, the story goes, and this I, here I rely mostly on the work of Revial Nets, uh, a historian uh, at Stanford University who has written extensively on this. He has this book called The Shaping of Deduction, which is still, even though it's almost 20 years ago that it was written, it's still the kind of most authoritative piece of work on the topic. And what he describes is that indeed it's this background of a uh, Debating, which was something that was taking place, uh, especially in political settings in ancient Athenian democracy. And so there's this pervasive uh, background of people engaging in debates with one another and having to uh, convince one another of their views. And it is against this background that the technique of mathematical uh, 
uh, deductive mathematical proofs emerges. And uh, one illustration for listeners who might uh, remember uh, the Mino by Plato. So there's this very famous dialogue in the Mino where Socrates shows to the, to the slave boy how to double the area of the square. So that's a deductive proof. And presumably, so these were kind of the uh, initial stages of how these proofs went with real dialogues of someone saying, well, and then if you agree with this, then this other thing follows. Do you agree? And then the, the slave says, yes, I agree, Socrates, etc., etc. So these will be kind of the examples of actual dialogues that correspond to mathematical proofs. But then what Ravi Arnetz describes very, uh, in a very compelling way is how from this background, very quickly, writing became the medium for expression of mathematical proofs. And when, with this move from orality to writing, it became much more regimented technique and with a lot of uh, conventions pertaining to the medium of writing. So, for example, he uh, elaborates a lot on the use of schematic letters to describe points and, you know, that, that kind of thing. And also, of course, diagrams become very important also. And these are all related to the written medium. But while, of course, there's been a fundamental transformation there from orality to writing, at the same time, many uh, dialogical uh, features of the technique of mathematical proofs remain in place even in the writing, in, in the written medium. And this is why then mathematical proofs, early Greek mathematical proofs, such as the ones you see in Euclid's Elements, they're both, as Ravionet says, they're both oral and written. Right? So on the one hand, they're of course written, they're like presented to you on a piece of paper, but they retain many uh, uh, dialogical components, and this is why they're kind of something like a hybrid entity between orality and writing. There's something counterintuitive about that, to my mind anyway. There's, there's something about a proof that seems to explicitly deny or, or at least resist dialogue, you know, in that a, a successful mathematical proof is just a slam dunk argument. You know, once that equal sign shows up, it's game over, right? <laughs> Nothing further <laughs> to be said. So what are these dialogical components then that, that exist in mathematical proofs? Well, to start with, a mathematical proof, even if it's the, you know, the, the, the successful ones, such as the ones you described, that they're just knockdown arguments, they are always discourse aimed at a particular audience. So in philosophy of mathematics, philosophy of logic, there's also a tendency to think about uh, proofs as kind of freestanding entities, right, with their own ontological status. And then you just look at them for what they are. Whereas I take a more functionalist perspective and I ask myself, what, you know, what are the points? Right? Because, you know, there could be many. Why, uh, are, why are mathematicians producing proofs at all, you mean? Exactly. Yeah. And why, you know, what's the function? What function is it playing in, in these human practices? And then the story is that even now, I mean, in very high-level mathematics, a proof is always a discourse aimed at a particular audience. So in that sense, it's already dialogical, although perhaps in a weak sense, right, of dialogical, that it's always discourse, which has the aim. I usually say that uh, the aim of a, uh, the main purpose of a mathematical proof is to produce explanatory persuasion. But uh, perhaps what you're also thinking of the fact that, you know, in a proof, if you just look at the proof, there's no real dialogue going on there, right? There's only, if at all, there's only one voice that you hear, which is the person putting forward the proof. But my idea is that this is kind of the end product of a process. You can imagine like this fictional, fictive dialogue where there is a, a, an audience there receiving the proof. But when, nothing, when there's nothing to object to, the audience remains silent. And this is why you don't hear the voice of the audience. Right? So the, there's just tacit agreement with all the steps of the proof. But this being said, so I have this story. I usually, I, the terms that I use for this is that the two participants in these fictive dialogues are prover and skeptic. 
skeptic. And so prover is the one formulating the proof, and skeptic is the one whose job it is to ensure that the proof is correct and that it's explanatory, that all steps are clear. And uh, so normally, if all goes well, you don't hear skeptic at all because everything's fine, skeptic has nothing to object to. But in actual mathematical practice, the role of skeptic is actually, there's, there are people who play this role, and it's just, uh, you know, as actual people, and these are the referees for articles that are submitted to mathematical journals. Uh, so even in actual mathematical practice as it is done now, so we don't even have to go back all the way to Greece <laughs> to have a, a, a you know a clear uh, dialogical uh, structure to mathematical proofs. Yeah, it's, it's in the word proof itself, isn't it? In that you're always trying to prove something to someone. Proof doesn't take place in a vacuum. Exactly. I mean, this is, you've just summarized, I mean, one of the most important uh, realizations that I've come to, you know, produce in this project, that proof is always going to be a triadic notion. It's the prover, the person producing it. It's the proof itself, but also the receiver, the, the, the person to whom the proof is intended. This is The Philosopher's Zone on RN. I'm David Rutledge, and I'm speaking with Katerina Dutil-Novais, who has a message for anyone who thinks that mathematics is dull or ugly or unworthy of aesthetic consideration. That message is, you're wrong. Mathematicians routinely describe mathematical proofs as elegant or beautiful, but what do they mean when they use this sort of terminology? Are they saying that a proof is beautiful to the extent that it simply does its job very well, and that what's being appreciated is its explanatory power? Or is there something more complicated going on? When I started working on this question, this is this was this was the answer for me. I mean, this is what I thought was the most plausible answer. So, insofar as you know, as I said before, the f the purpose of a mathematical proof is to produce explanatory persuasion. Then, proofs that fulfill this function well will be beautiful, just in the sense as uh, as uh, you know, as chairs are beautiful, which for, uh, which perform their function of allowing for humans to sit on. Uh, well, and this, by the way, this notion of uh, functional beauty, Hume, for example, talked about it exactly in terms of chairs. So that's why I had the example of chair in mind now. And uh, so I started out thinking about it in this way. And in this sense, uh, then mathematical beauty, if that, that were the case, it would be reducible, entirely reducible, or for the most part reducible to matters pertaining to epistemic features of the proof, in particular, explanatoriness, right? So there wouldn't be anything non-epistemic about the whole thing, about beauty, right? So beauty Beauty would not really be uh, talk of beauty with respect to proofs. Would not really be uh, referring to aesthetic properties of the proofs, but rather only to epistemic properties, and in a kind of roundabout way, referring to epistemic properties, but then using aesthetic vocabulary. I started thinking about these questions in this way, and then uh, and then I stumbled upon uh, things that didn't quite fit the story, and then I had to review my whole story. And in particular, so uh, in this paper that I wrote on the beauty of mathematical proofs. I was using um, a list of six criteria for something, you know, for a mathematical proof to count as beautiful. So five of these criteria I could uh, bring back to purely epistemic uh, features pertaining to explanation. But there was one that I just couldn't make fit, the story, the purely epistemic story that I wanted, which is unexpectedness. One of the features that beautiful proofs often have, not a necessary condition, right, but it's something that is often present in beautiful proofs, is that they're surprising, that there's an, an expected turn of events. And I, that doesn't square very well with explanatoriness, right, because explanatoriness, is the, the idea is that, you know, if, an, if a particular explanation is successful in terms of 
provoking this understanding or this effect of understanding, then there are no surprises because you're following the argument as you go along at every step. Huh? The whole thing is transparent to you throughout. But an expectedness is not that, right? An expectedness is when something there's a you know surprising turn of events in the proof, and uh, and 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 how does that square? That that I came to the conclusion that this this doesn't really square with a purely epistemic conception of mathematical beauty, and so I had to go look elsewhere, and specifically with respect to unexpectedness. Then uh, my story now is that it's related to what is described as the aha experience. Right? So when you like you come to see something, and a, and a high experience is a sudden uh, reaction, and immediately all of a sudden you just see something that you hadn't seen before, and then it all makes sense. And in turn, this a high experience then increases conviction in the proof. So it still has a functional role to play related to persuasion, but it's not directly uh, uh, to be reduced to ideals of explanatoriness. That's interesting because you've you've said that mathematical proofs display some interesting similarities with poetry or, or with some particular poetic traditions and with classical music. Is that can you tell me how that works? And it, does unexpectedness play a, a role here as well? Yes, that's I, that's exactly the point. I think that there's something very similar about. Uh, what's going on between what's going on in mathematical proofs that have this feature of unexpectedness and what what you see in great poetry and in great classical music. So I, I have in mind specifically classical poetry, right? So poetry that's based on very kind of strict conditions, right, for a poem to be written. So there are very strict criteria of what counts as a, as a poem. The 14-line so sonnet, exactly. that Exactly. Sort of yeah. It's 14 lines, and there's a particular rhythm, structure, and all that. And so in a, if you look at classical poetry in this way, um, beauty often emerges from the phenomenon of creativity within constraints, right? So if you feed in the, the formula of what it is to write a poem, you know, in 14 lines and with a four, four, three, three, or the Alexandrian, is um, you, you can feed it into a computer and the computer will kind of like be able to, you know, uh, satisfy the constraints, but it won't necessarily be able to produce something that's creative, that's novel, that has a spark of creativity. So this idea of uh, creativity within constraints being the source of beauty from a, a classical poetry, I think is very appealing. And a, a similar thing applies to classical music, where also there are these fairly strict conventions of what counts as good music. And at the same time, there's room for creativity and variation and the great composers the great musicians are the ones that within those sets of the, the set of constraints still manage to produce something novel right and um, the story goes then that math for mathematical proofs something very similar applies uh, because again the, the the technique of mathematical proofs is also based on fairly strict constraints of what is and is not allowed and then so in the same way so there is uh, the same thing I mean I can feed uh, the the rules of a particular proof system into a computer and the computer will spit out proofs, but they won't necessarily be uh, innovative and creative. So uh, in, in uh, automated proof the theorem proving, people talk about brute force proofs, right? It's just kind of combinatorial uh, analysis of the possibilities within the, the rules allowed within the system. But that's not necessarily going to give you something that's really novel and interesting, right? It's just going to be a lot of these theorems are probably going to be pretty trivial and nobody's going to be interested in them. But uh, the beauty of, you know, when a, a particularly inspired mathematician comes up with something that is within 
that still respects the constraints of the technique of proof and yet proves something uh, either the, the result of the proof itself is very surprising or else even if the result itself is not surprising but the way in which it was proved is original and creative that's when you know that's where one of the uh, ways in which beauty emerges in mathematical proofs and so uh, when uh, in fact a friend of mine who's an editor for a mathematics journal he was saying you know when I send a paper to referees I'm interested in three things mostly. I'm interested, first, if the proofs are correct. Second one is whether the results are novel. But third, if the proof is interesting, if it's saying something that's worth paying attention to. And I think there, you know, uh, aesthetic uh, components will play a fundamental role. And it, it can also, in the, by the way, it can also go in a negative direction. It can also be misleading in the sense that something that's really, really beautiful can dazzle us with its beauty and yet be, epistemically speaking, uh, a mistake. And here it's not so much the case in, uh, in pure mathematics, but if you think about economics and how economists, uh, you know, were in a way dazzled and infatuated by the, the beauty and simplicity of their mathematical models, and that, but which turned out to be very inaccurate, empirically speaking. And then, of course, you know, it's at least mentioned as one of the factors that contributed to the financial crisis of 2007-2008 was the beauty of these models, these mathematical models that economists were looking at. Yeah, this conversation, I mean, it, it makes me reflect on my years in high school where I was terrible at maths and, you know, every, every year I would come sort of bottom of the class and so the next year I'd be bumped down to a lower class and I sort of went bump, bump, bump down right down to the very bottom class where finally I encountered a teacher who, who was just, he was a football player, right, and he, you know, doing a bit of teaching on his, on his, uh, during the off-season, but he knew how to explain mathematics to dummies who didn't know anything about maths. And I can remember in that class for the first time starting to do just very simple equations and processes and, and things starting to come out right. And my memory of those maths classes is, is by, you know, far and away my most sort of pleasurable memory of, of high school, where I was really into English and language and things like, things that I was good at. But it, it was th it's those maths classes that really stick out as a pleasurable experience. It was like almost an almost sublime experience. Mm -hmm. Or is this an exaggeration? Yeah, no, well, it yeah. sublime? <laughs> well, it was a relief, that's for sure. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, so I, when I just kind of, bit of autobiographical uh, background. When I when I was 14, I moved to France with my parents from Brazil, and I was in high school in France for two years. And then there was this huge shock, academic shock, right? Because not only the language was different, but also it was so much more difficult than what I was used to in Brazil, because, you know, high school mathematics in France is, you know, takes place at a fairly high level. You learn calculus and you prove stuff. So, and first, of course, I was completely clueless, but I worked really, really hard to get better also because I really liked it. And, and it was just, um, so in a way, some Similar to your story, and it was just absolutely mind blowing. And my my passion for mathematics, my love for mathematics, comes from that period. I just did this uh, amazing experience of seeing it all falling together, right? These different pieces of the puzzle, and they all come together. But uh, generally, there is this problem, and this is something that mathematics educators, of course, uh, work on extensively. There's this general perception that math is hard, math is boring, and all this. And mathematics educators are one of the some of the few of the of the 
groups of people who have looked into the role of emotions in mathematics because obviously they know that learning never takes place in an v- emotional vacuum, right? Learning is a very emotional process. So, so there's some literature there looking at how to activate uh, positive, uh, effective responses so that the experience of mathematics uh, that students have is more positive rather than kind of like, you know, scaring them away. So, I mean, I'm not saying that everyone should <laughs> love mathematics and see beauty in it, but I think a lot of it is about uh, this, this, this general perception of it being something uh, not very human and, and very kind of abstract and very far removed from, from earthly concerns. And to some extent, that's, of course, that's true. It's quite abstract, right? It's at a high level of abstraction. But at the same time, it's just absolutely fascinating, you know, when once you manage to enter that world, that kind of somewhat intimidating world, it, just, it can be absolutely fantastic and you just never want to leave, in a way. Katarina dutil Novaes, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the Free University of Amsterdam, speaking there on her recent visit to Australia. More information on the website, along with our program archive, check out the back catalogue. And of course, subscribe to the podcast. That way we come to you and you never have to go looking for us again. This has been The Philosopher's Zone. Our producer is Diane Dean and sound engineer this week was Luke Purse. And I'm David Rutledge. See you next time. And now, just before we go, I wanted to give you a quick heads up on one of my very favourite RN programs, an extremely wide-ranging documentary series that has something for anyone who's into storytelling and people and places and the minutiae of other lives. It's called Earshot, and if you haven't checked it out yet, then you could just be missing out on one of the best audio features you're likely to hear anywhere. A woman's football team being formed in a remote Aboriginal community, the challenges of fish farming in northern New South Wales, the hazards of being an interpreter in Afghanistan, two sets of same-sex couples negotiating the minefield of modern family life, and how prison inmates maintain relationships with their kids. That's just a very quick roundup of some recent episodes, and it should give you some idea of just how broad and how deep this series goes. It's called Earshot. It's really good. And you can get it via the ABC Listen app or your preferred podcast provider. Check it out.